Welcome back to the Roads to Wealth podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rhodes, and for today's guest, I bring to you another Trends member. I feel that's every other week now I have one of these guys coming on. I think this is back-to-back episodes here last week and this week, Trends.co. It's some of the sharpest minds that I've had. This is not a sponsorship, not an affiliate or anything of that nature. Just a huge fan of what they have going on, the community that they've built. Today's guest is Dom Wells. Dom is the founder of Onfolio, onfolio onfolio.co. And Dom has been building, buying, and operating profitable websites since 2012. He is an industry thought leader, an international speaker, and owns a seven-figure content site portfolio. I actually crossed paths with Dom Uh, via the trends group and the online Facebook community. He's very active, lots of people asking him questions. And after going deep into his content, into his rabbit hole, I have researched probably two-ish months for this. Lots of front-loaded work, probably the most notes I've ever taken on a single guest and just chaos on my table throughout this interview. It's the first time I've had an episode that I've recorded and wanted to release in the same week. And I'm actually front loaded three to four weeks. And so I'm unable to make that happen, but I've been itching to get this out to you guys and really, really excited to get the content in your ears. Today on Folio operates, they manage at the time of this interview is 45 sites and maybe more than that now, ranging anywhere from $25,000 a year to $35,000 a month in profit. Quite a range, right? but lots of success, and hence the reason I've pulled him on. We explore lots of topics in this online business world of when should I go out and buy an online business versus when does it make more sense for me to try and build an online business? If you decide to buy an online business, what are you looking for? What are some of those numbers and what does a good number look like, right? What are some of your buying markers or signals? When you acquire a business, what are some of the first things that you implement to improve it immediately, right? Do you have some sort of run book or play that you implement? With a portfolio of over 45 companies, right? Onfolio, the big organization, you've got 45 children underneath you. What does the organizational chart look like? Do you have a CEO for each company? Do you have a CEO per a certain amount of companies? How does that structure, right? And I'm just super interested in that. So we explore that for the last couple minutes. Lots to dig into here. And I will be back at the end to try to summarize all of this with some of my big takeaways. But with that, I bring to you all Dom Wells. It's the road of the wealth, yeah. I do it for health, yeah. my kids and my spouse, yeah. financially sound. The bad day. Here we are. Dom, man, I really, really appreciate you doing this. I mentioned offline, but I've had about two months now to prepare for this interview. Been doing research, listening to you talk, been reading your work. I've got notes and notebooks all over the place in front of me, man. So there's a lot that I want to explore. Really, really excited to do this and, and appreciate your time. Wow. Sounds like you've probably listened to my podcasts more than I have. <laughs> so <laughs> that's it's good. Yeah. I'm really excited to be here and explore all of the notes you've got. Yeah, man. I at least want to give a quick shout out to the Trends Group. You're one of many uh, of the members of that group that I've had on the podcast and you guys just continue to 
build momentum and it seems like each person gets better than the next. But I, I want to give them a quick shout out as I originally found you in a uh, thread where we were both involved talking about this buying and investing content websites. And you posted something around you guys own roughly 45 websites today. Some of them making you know something like $25,000 a year. Some of them as big as $35,000, $40,000 a month in profit. And so I almost fell out of my chair, right? And so I immediately reached out. It's a really interesting side hustle or really interesting idea. You're not building websites. Instead, you're acquiring websites. And I think the caveat here is that these websites are just websites showing potential, but they've shown results. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I say all that to say you and your team, you guys are the real deal, man. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, just to clarify, we don't own all of those 40 sites. Some of them we own, some of them we work with investors to buy them and then they own them and we manage them. So it's essentially our portfolio, I guess, but we, uh, I don't want to take credit for owning the sites when they're not all ours, but yeah. And I'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about Onfolio in a second because I think it's worth, it's worth spending some cycles on, on what you guys have going on. But before I even get there, I mentioned you're the real deal. Can you talk to my listeners and I just a little bit about who you are and, and what you have going on? And feel free to start wherever you'd like. I'd ask maybe at a minimum that you start in sort of the maxed out credit card 2012-ish timeframe, but wherever you want, man. It's a good place to start. Yeah, the maxed out credit card. Okay, so... I basically started from scratch. I was the typical affiliate marketer, bootstrapper who had no budget, hence the the maxed out credit card, but I wanted to try and make some money online. And so I actually maxed out my credit card to buy some training and buy some tools like hosting and some basic things for some of my first WordPress websites. At the time I was living in Taiwan, I Actually, I still am living in Taiwan, but I had been in Taiwan for a few years, had been teaching English, and I didn't want to teach anymore, but I didn't want to leave, uh, needed to find a job, or needed to find an additional source of income. And so, yeah, I just kind of discovered affiliate marketing, and I thought, perhaps fortunately, I thought it was going to be way easier than it was. And so I was like, yeah, I'll try that. And it took me a lot longer than I I expected. I, I think I thought, I don't know exactly what I thought, but I thought the money would be big within like six months or something, whereas it actually took me 18 months to earn my first thousand dollars like in a, in a calendar month. And actually at that point, it did start accelerating quite quickly. So it was like 18 months to get to a thousand, but maybe it only took another six months to get to 5,000. So at that point, getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but at that point, like I guess I'd found product market fit and stuff was accelerating. So... This was back in 2012, yeah, late 2012. And so, you know, it's, it's been an interesting journey in the eight years, just over eight years since I started. But I was a pure bootstrapper, literally, like, in my overdraft, couldn't spend anything on a credit card, was living paycheck to paycheck on my teaching job. And here I am <laughs> from there. Yeah. I mean, you, you fast forward, like you said, eight years. You live in Taiwan today. How big is your team? And it's totally remote, correct? Yeah, all remote, all distributed. Nobody, right now, nobody's in Taiwan with me. Um, normally, someone, a few people will fly into Taiwan several times a year. But um, with COVID, everyone's kind of stuck where they are. So I've got team members in Vancouver, Seattle, not the best example, because they're pretty much next to each other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, New Zealand, 
where else? Eastern Europe, South Africa, Philippines, basically the whole world. So like, yeah, spread across the globe. Yeah, we have pretty much every time zone covered except Hawaii. That has kind of always been how it's been because being in Taiwan in a, in a country where the most people speak Mandarin and living, being English and living in the sort of English-speaking ecosystem of Google and everything, I was always like online. I was all around the world, even though in uh, offline I was just like in a in a small island. And so I've just never known it any other way, really. Yeah, it's interesting. Rob Cubbin lives out there as well. That seems to be like a, a nomadic place of interest. Like that's just interesting as a CSI piece. But I do want to spend most of our time today talking through what it looks like and what it takes to buy an online asset. Before I get there though, I, I mentioned I want to spend a cycle on on Folio. You kind of talked about eight years ago, how you got started. You fast forward, you've got this global team. Can you talk a little bit about what you guys have going on over there? Yeah. So basically, we I started on Folio about 18 months ago. And the idea was there was plenty of people out there who wanted to invest in online businesses, websites, e-commerce, that kind of thing. But they either didn't know how or they didn't have the desire to know how or they just didn't have the bandwidth. So an example would be like people in the real estate world who wanted higher yield but they just didn't want to operate businesses. And so I actually had the idea from Folio in probably 2014. But at the time, I remember saying to my wife, I think a really good idea would be there's people out there that have money and want to invest in websites, but they don't know how. So I could just operate the websites for them, help them buy them. But I'm just some dude living in Taiwan with like no track record and no credibility and and all of those things. And I forgot about the idea, got busy with my previous business. And and then in 20, uh, I don't even know, I guess 2018, some people in my previous business audience were talking about like, oh, I've got money, but I don't know where to, I don't know how to tell what websites are good and what are bad and how to run them afterwards. And I was like, oh, I could totally just work with you on that and my team can run the websites for you. And then it started to get a bit of traction. And I, I spoke to a few other people. I emailed my list and was like, does anyone want this service? And then suddenly I was like, hey, wait a minute. I had this idea like five years ago, except now I'm still some dude in Taiwan, but I have credibility. I have a track record. I have experience and I have like referrals. And, and so I thought, yeah, let's, let's do it this time. And so basically over the last 18 months, we've, we've just worked with investors. We started out where the minimum was 30K because I thought no one's going to want to give me more than that to buy a website. And the last website we bought was 1.1 million. So it's, it's scaled up a lot from 30K. And essentially what happens is, yeah, people come to me. Sometimes it's groups. Sometimes it's private equity that's trying to dip a bit below where they normally go. Um, sometimes it's high net worth individuals or like that sort of groups of friends and, and they just say, yeah, we want to buy a business or a collection of businesses and have you run them for us. Where the idea came from, I read that in one of your blog posts, I believe, is you were a human proof and this idea, it was driven by demand, right? By friend and user demand. People coming to you and saying, can you help me with the back end? Can you help me purchase? Can you help me figure this out? Help me with the due diligence process. Help me onboard this company. They were coming to you and you were starting to be looked at as the expert in the realm. And it's cool to hear this idea manifest three, four, five years, and then it come to fruition and it'd be exactly what you had 
originally thought it was going to be, right? And you just took those four or five years to cook and build your skill set, and then you were ready to launch. I have maybe two questions about your business, and then we'll we'll move on. But you mentioned there you started with a 30k minimum. Is that still the case? And then a follow up. I just had CrowdStreet, who is a crowdfunding platform to invest in real estate or commercial real estate. You've got to be an accredited investor to invest in that type of platform. Is it the same with you guys? So the second question, the first question, 30K is not our minimum anymore. It's actually 100K. And I try not to put a a minimum on it because it turns out people listen to podcasts and then they come to me six months later and they're like, oh, I thought it was still 30K. So (laughs) what's going to happen is someone will come to me in six months and say, oh, I thought it was still 100K. And I'll be like, yeah, no, it's 500 now or uh, whatever, uh, whatever it is. But um, right now, that's what it is. And then if someone is investing as an individual with us they don't need to be accredited because essentially they're just they're just buying a business and we're like a service provider or um yeah like a consultant or something like that that being said we did just finish like literally today finish a private fundraising round where people needed to be accredited so for that one yeah like we used the typical sec regulation d for that one but if someone yeah just wants to hire us as an individual then then that's their them hiring us. And congratulations on the the raise. Uh, that's, I mean, continuing to add different layers into the, the portfolio, man, you guys have grown. It's so interesting to watch this. You know, one of the struggles, and I, I mentioned I've been researching and reading this for now probably two months. And, and one of the struggles that I've come up on a couple of times is, and this has been in different blogs and articles and, and podcasts, investors talk about the struggle or the issue of diversity when investing in businesses or online businesses, right? I've heard some people preach or talk about the idea of making one big bet and putting you know, this 100K or whatever this is into one business. And the problem is if they're wrong in that one investment, they're out of the game, right? And then the other, on the, on the flip side of this, you hear investors talk about, well, let's spread this across several investments, eight, nine, 10, however many investments, right? 45 investments. And at that point, you have these little pops, uh, but you're, you're sort of spreading yourself thin and you're not able to fully sort of accept or appreciate the building of that business, right? And you're not able to capture all of that wealth that you could be building. I want to maybe put this in your court of, can you talk a little bit about that line and maybe your take on the right makeup or what a portfolio should look like? Yeah, there's definitely a sweet spot. And I think it maybe is different for different people. For me, I've I've always naturally gravitated towards diversification, not necessarily for diversification purposes, but when I first started, I couldn't just work on one website. I had I always had three or four on the go. And part of it was because I thought, well, what if this one doesn't succeed? I don't want to have wasted my time. If I can work on four at the same time, when one of them takes off, I'll focus on that one a bit more. And friends would say to me, if you just focused on one, maybe it would be making 10K a month by now. Instead, you've got four sites doing like 500 a month. I was like, yeah, cool. Makes sense. But I just couldn't do it. My brain would get distracted or I wanted to do, you know, maybe I had enough spare time that I was like, well, I'm going to start a second site. And so I always ended up with multiple businesses. And now when I was buying sites, I found initially, I found it was easier to just buy additional revenue than it was to grow additional revenue. So I just looked to buying more businesses as just buying more revenue. And so if we had one website, it was making, let's say, 5K a month. If I wanted another 5K, 
yeah, maybe I could put like some, maybe I could put 30K or 20K into that business and, and double it. Or maybe I couldn't. Or I could go out and spend 150K, which is obviously significantly more, but I could buy another site that was making that 5K. And I just saw that as a more predictable way of doing it. And then at the same time, when a Google update rolls around and one of those 5K sites loses its income or takes a revenue hit, but the other one goes up, I felt like that kind of justified diversification as well. But then if you go too far, then yeah, like you say, if you, let's say you have 40 businesses like we're operating, you can't do that by yourself, which means either the businesses don't grow as well as they should, or they start to suffer, or you have to have a bigger team, which then impacts your expenses. And it's not that viable unless you start operating bigger and bigger businesses that have the margins. Yeah, so it's, it's a constant balancing act. And I think it also depends on the strategy that people are, are going on. And I, I don't necessarily think one is better than the other. Many people have done very well with just one business. Many people have done well with multiple. I think it's just about what your strengths are and maybe what the, the strengths of the individual businesses are as well. Yeah. And you just, you kind of hinted at some of the reasons an investor, why would someone look to invest in an existing online asset versus grow and or, you know, grow their own business or try to build something themselves? And you've talked about the predictability and there's already generated cash flow. You're able to kind of look inside and see these minute changes you can make and kind of project where this thing could be in the next 12, 18, 24 months. I want to maybe just hit you with that question directly and see if there's anything different or additional. Why, you know, what are some of the pros and cons? Why would someone decide to build? Why would someone decide to acquire a company versus or acquire an online asset versus try to build something from scratch, right? I know this is probably an hours long answer, but any high level details or, or sort of pros and cons that you rattle off? Yeah. I mean, again, this, this goes, this is different people. I mean, in your research, you may have come across the podcast I did where it was like, should you build a business versus buy? I was obviously in the buy camp and someone else was in the build camp and his arguments were actually pretty compelling. And I was like, yeah, I actually agree with that, with that quite a lot. I think lot you of guys time. agreed on most topics. Yeah. <laughs> that was on uh, that was on Nick Loper's show, right? Yeah. Well, his mistake was he had two British people. So we weren't going to, we, <laughs> we weren't going to be too confrontational. Okay. He was Scottish and I'm English. So there was a little bit of tension there. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it was like Mark uh, Mark Webster from Authority Hacker was the other person. And he was like, yeah, you should totally build and here's why. And I was like, yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I prefer buying, but that, that is also fine. <laughs> but I think Mark's arguments were that it was more, if you don't know what you're doing, you should build because if you buy the site's going to go to zero quite quickly and, and through building your learning and you're forced to understand and and, and also, um, Mark and his business partner, Gail, are, they're quite, I would say they're perfectionists, which is, I'm saying this in a, in a positive way. So they love the control that building a website gives them. They don't like buying a site and then they're like, oh my God, the person built this. Like, what were they doing? We've got to fix everything. So they like planning everything from the ground up. And so I would say if, if someone else is like that, then they should probably also build. Whereas for me, and, and again, so they were talking to maybe people who were inexperienced. Whereas for me, if you already know how to operate a business, buying is just way better. Assuming that having the money to buy in the first place isn't an issue, then buying is better because you could start 15 websites and 
none of them make any money ever. Or you could start 15 websites and three of them make money. And I don't mean starting them all at the same time, like just in isolation, all of them get the focus that they need, but just for whatever reason, they never get any traction. And it's the same with any startup. Whereas if you buy one, it's already established. And so, you know, even if you never grow it, the price you've paid is still a pretty good multiple that, you know, maybe you've paid 3x for this thing. So you're going to get something like 35% ROI just just if you hold its value. You do still have to work to hold its value, but you don't have to grow it and figure out the product market fit and fill in all these blanks in order to make it work. You just have to be like, oh, it's already working. I just have to make sure it keeps working. And I feel like in business, you never know what's going to work. Like, of course you don't. No one ever knows what's going to work. You, you do a marketing campaign and it could make millions or it could just completely fall flat. And I, I'm kind of sick of... <laughs> stuff not working so i was like i i just want to i just want to stop coming up with creative ways to fail to make money and um just like start just buying money instead yeah i mean your uh makes a lot of sense again both sides and i listened to that podcast thoroughly and my next point here i mean i'm gonna kind of you hinted at mark's side in another interview we'll talk about but really interesting to hear you're kind of buying the learning curve right and we had like Amos Schwartzfarb from Techstars come on and he talked about finding your who. And there's times that it takes products and or businesses 6, 12, 18 months to figure out who exactly they're targeting. When you come in and you're acquiring an online business and they're already seeing profits, they're already seeing business, they've kind of, you know, through your due diligence, you're able to determine, okay, you guys have pivoted the correct way. You're in the right spot. I can come in, add some additional value and we can really boost this thing. And, and they've already kind of, they've gone through that initial roadblock or those initial learning curve hurdles, right? I listened to you in another podcast or an, another episode of totally different podcast talking about these sites or the investors that fail. And I thought it was really interesting. And you kind of hinted at it here. I'm pulling a quote here. It says, of all the sites that die after purchase, at least 50% of those die due to poor operation post-purchase, right? So it's people coming in, making investments there, just like you did, uh, assuming that it's going to be a passive investment or that they know what's going on. They acquire the business and they realize there are far too many moving pieces. They don't have control of it. They lacked a, a clear strategy coming into it. And then they fail, right? And they're out of the game. I want to pose this to you and how involved is this process? And maybe we put it on a spectrum, you know, how, how many hours weekly or monthly are you putting in? And let's even compare it to something like, you know, real estate flipping where you're having to rehab and it's very involved versus, you know, index fund investing where it's very passive and I don't look at it at all for the year, right? So where does this fit on that spectrum? Hmm. See, I think there's where it is for me and where it is for, I'm trying to put myself in the, the shoes of someone who maybe hasn't done it before, because someone like me, I would say probably somewhere, probably smack bang in the middle between like, yeah, the real estate example and the, the index fund. But someone who came in right away, uh, pretty raw, they bought a business, I would say, well, they should put in like a few hours a day. Because if they don't, they won't know, they, you know, they need to learn. So totally. a lot of the time that I spend, if I was just running one site by myself and I didn't need to do anything else and I just worked with a couple of freelancers, which sometimes I think would be quite nice, probably 
yeah, like a few hours a week, maybe less. But if I didn't know what I was doing, I would say like, well, first of all, you shouldn't be buying it. <laughs> Assuming like you'd, you'd done some basic research, you understood what you needed to do. Yeah, probably a few hours a day just to make sure you're really keeping on top of everything. But again, like the absolute minimum you could get away with would be a, like, let's say one hour a week where a site's fairly on autopilot and you're just checking in. But if you do that, it's probably not going to sustain for a long period. Eventually it will just go to zero or start declining. Are you finding that, and I'm, I'm sort of zooming out a little bit here, but what are you actually buying? What are you focused on? Have you found that you're mostly focused on affiliate type websites or are you going to buy e-commerce shops? Have you found a specific type of online asset that either you specialize in or that works better than others? Like, What, what are you focused on here? We focus on content websites because it's really just what I've always focused on and it's what I'm good at. I would say I don't think content websites are inherently better than SaaS or than uh, e-commerce or something or uh, FBA. It's just it's just what I know. And then we, we don't particularly focus on a particular vertical in a niche segment or anything. We're, we're pretty agnostic there. Uh, yeah. You're agnostic, but as the personal investor, or if, if you were going to talk with someone, you know, if I had $100,000 or whatever that was to spend, should would you recommend that the personal investor try to stay in a niche? You know, I love Brazilian jiu-jitsu or millennial wealth, right? And uh, my nine to five, I'm in a cybersecurity role. And so should I try to focus on a market of that type? Or would you suggest, you know, sort of becoming agnostic and just looking at the numbers and being able to evaluate website traffic, production, monthly cash flow, things like that, and make a decision based off of the science versus the the love or the passion for the business. What's your sort of recommendation on that? I think it depends what your involvement is going to be. Assuming that you're going to operate a business, I think it does. It definitely helps to have subject matter expertise because first of all, you're going to be able to either produce or delegate higher quality content because you're going to be able to see, is this content actually accurate? Is it good enough? And also you're going to spot trends and opportunities in the segment. Like maybe you read forums that are relevant or you subscribe to newsletters and you see topics that people are talking about and you think, oh, this would be something I should do a blog post about. And then that can bring traffic to your site because you're one of the first people doing it. That being said, that doesn't necessarily make for a good investment or a bad investment so you need to have that as a kind of layer to put on top of the fact that the numbers make sense yeah and then if you're trying to do it at scale then yeah you need to start being a little more scientific about it like like we are yeah if if the numbers make sense i want to talk about your criteria in a second maybe just a quick sidebar of where are you sourcing the deals from? Is there a specific website, Quiet Light, Empire Flippers, things like that? Or are you taking more of, I'll, I'll hint it back to the real estate example of just maybe shooting these cold emails or writing letters and sending them out and saying, you know, we want to buy your business. Like where's your sourcing coming from? Where do your deals come from? There are people that do that. The, the cold email, I don't. and I'll go into that in a second. But yeah, you've mentioned Quiet Light and Empire Flippers. I've actually never bought a business off Quiet Light, but I check their, yeah, just no, no real reason for that. I just haven't bought one of them yet. I check their listings. They're a little e-commerce heavy, so they don't have as much content, as many content sites. So that's probably why I haven't bought one. FE International, I've bought a lot from. And Empire Flippers bought probably, I don't know, maybe half a dozen and, and uh, probably two dozen from FE 
And a lot of, a lot of, I get a lot of inbound deal flow, actually, sometimes half a million dollars in size. So it's not just like small websites. So a lot of people either hear me on a podcast or they know that I'm a buyer. They see me in Facebook groups or whatever. And they're like, Hey, do you want to buy my business? And a lot of them are garbage, but there's been some really good ones as well. And actually a really good source is people I buy from once through a broker, they come to me later when they want to sell again because they know I'm they know I'm a I'm a buyer that has money fairly quickly and that I'm going to be easy to deal with and they know that I'm not going to charge them a broker fee. And I like that because I've bought a site from them before so I know it's quality. And uh, yeah, I bought four or five businesses that way. And that's just a nice bonus. I never thought like, oh, I'm going to start working with brokers so that I can then get a network of sellers like a, a, it was just a, a happy coincidence that they started coming back to me so yeah so on on the email front the reason i don't do that is because i tried it and i found it was just a complete waste of time there, there are probably people out there that can execute it well but i find if i email i was probably spending like an hour a day replying to people who were like yeah maybe i'm interested in selling my website and i'd be like oh cool can i get some information about it and then there would be someone who would say I'm not going to share information about my website unless you sign an NDA. So totally, totally makes sense. Sure. I'll, I'll sign the NDA. Here's a template. Does it look good? Yeah. Okay. Let's fill it out and sign it. And then they put their P&L together and they're making like 10 bucks a month. And I'm like, yeah. oh, that wasn't yeah. worth the time. Like fair enough. Like he wanted to protect his, you know, his income and everything. But I was like, oh, that was a waste of time. And then. Yeah. I burned money going through this NDA signing process. Like I, it w- was not worth looking at the $10 a month business. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, I, the, the electricity I wasted was worth more than $10. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But then there's other people who are like, make me an offer. And I'm like, well, okay, how much is your site making? But I'm not going to tell you that. It's like, well, okay, $10 billion. Like, I don't know how to make you an offer if you're not going to tell me anything. And I get it. Like, I've I've cold emailed them. They're like, I'm not going to sell unless it's for an amazing price. So that's my price. And so this is what I mean. I was just like, I did have some people though that were like, oh yeah, my business is, I'm not going to sell my business in, until it's worth $2 million. And I'd kind of be like, okay, fine. How much is it, you know, how much money is it making? And they're like 40K a month. And I'm like, oh, it's, it's not, it's not actually far off $2 million valuation. Okay. So there were a couple who I was, I was like, yeah, okay, I'll come back to you in the future. But in the end, I just was like, yeah, the dealing with unmotivated sellers is, is, is tricky. And so I just found it wasn't worth the time. And and another thing I'll add is I think the reason a lot of people think that you should do cold emailing is because they think people that you cold email are unsophisticated sellers, which they are. So therefore you'll be able to buy their site for nothing. Whereas in fact, it's the opposite is true. They don't want to sell. So they want like a ridiculous multiple because they just don't know how, how businesses are valued. And they often say stuff like, I'm trying to avoid going on a rant here, but you know they'll say stuff like, um, yeah, "No, you're right." You know, oh, my business is doing three hundred dollars a month, but it's got potential to be fifty k a month. So I'm going to work on it for a bit more and sell it for five, you know, two million dollars. You know, you can have it now for five hundred k. And you're like, "Did you just say it's making nothing?" 
And so it's just like, okay, this is just not worth my time. Yeah. I sent out a thousand emails and they all have potential. They all feel like they have potential. Like, of, of course, yours has potential. Where are your numbers at? Yeah, exactly. And I'm going to circle back to the initial investor, sort of the, we'll put it in quotations, the first timers. But of these routes we talked about, the FE International, the Empire Flippers, Quiet Light, is this a first timer stop as well? Is this where they should go for their first time investment? Or would you suggest a different route? Uh, and then my follow up is do they need to, I know you started with a 30, K minimum. Do you think that's safe? Is like a uh, you know your first investment. You don't want to put a hundred K into something most of the time. What do you think is a safe first investment? There, uh, I know there's a couple questions, and, and I'm happy to explore whatever you got. Uh, yeah, I mean it really depends because I feel so those places are okay places to go, sure. But I feel the problem is if you don't really know what you're doing, it's kind of like well, how much money are you prepared to lose? I'm not saying you definitely will. But 30K for some people is like, yeah, I can play with 30K. Like maybe they've got a million sitting in the bank. For other people, 30K is like everything they've got. So I don't want to say it's a good price or it's a bad price. And if someone really doesn't know what they're doing and they want to buy a business and just try and figure it out for themselves, in that case, I will agree with Mark and say you should probably build one first because you'll learn how to buy one, uh, how to operate one through building one. Uh, And it will take longer. You know, maybe it'll take you six months to actually really understand but you'll be much more likely to succeed having gone through that. If you don't want to do that, then you should probably work with someone like us who is an operator who will make sure the site, or you know, we can't make sure, but we'll, we'll do our best to, to operate the site as best as we can and you know, protect it from going to zero. Or there's, there's a kind of growing, a growing role in the space, which is like buyer representation, because most of the brokers, they work for sellers. And, but there are a few people out there now who work with buyers to help them buy a site, and they won't operate it for them afterwards, but they'll give them a plan and maybe they'll help them find some freelancers and stuff like that. I think that's, that's really good for the industry. A lot of buyers need handholding and stuff like that. Yeah. So I would basically say you should probably either build one or, or you could buy a small, you know, rinky dink one for like $500, which is going to learn. It's going to teach you how to operate it without you having to go through all the rigmarole of figuring out how to set up WordPress and build a domain name. But at the same time, if it completely fails, you've only lost $500. That might be a, a good starting point as well. Yeah, I think you're you're echoing, you're you're beating up what what you guys talked about there on the podcast of if you have the experience, if you have the team, if you have the skill set, if you understand sort of competitive research and content strategy and SEO and you know the numbers to look at and how to produce and create organic traffic and Google search and, and things like then it makes sense to maybe go this invest in a uh, existing asset route. Uh, if you have none of that. The idea of spending however much money, $500, $30,000, or $100,000, you have a very high likelihood of burning through that money and using it as a learning experience if you don't have that experience, right? So it's probably better in that route to start from scratch or close to it. Like you said, spend 500 bucks and buy a website that's been built on WordPress uh, and start to learn and take courses and take classes and learn uh, the ins and outs of that. Uh, I think the third option is is go with something like you guys, where you have all the experience, you have the team, you've got the options, you understand the ropes really, really well. 
Uh, if I have a little capital saved, I can see, I can put that with you guys, and then you have the expertise to offload all the management and uh, give my my website the best opportunity to grow and, and produce cash flow. So I'd love the idea there. I told you I wanted to talk about your criteria quickly. I, this idea of criteria and due diligence. We've heard entrepreneurs of all types here on the podcast talk about how important their due diligence or their research phase is before they enter into an opportunity or into an investment. Uh, when you're setting out to a buy an, an asset and you're going to spend something like a hundred or $250,000, I'm assuming that your criteria and your due diligence process is really, it's pretty you know rigorous, right? It's got to be quite hefty. Let's start with, with criteria. And when you hit one of these you know, Empire Flipper websites, what makes a deal really attractive to you? Are you looking for builder opportunities where you see traffic and you know, if I come in, I insert now these WordPress plugins, I make these changes, I optimize this page, we're going to start to grow organically over the next 12 to 18 months. Or are you looking for more short-term wins where you see something, it's, cre- it's got traffic and you know, oh, there's no sort of display ads here on the website, right? And so I can immediately come in, implement Ad Thrive, and I will immediately start making money from, from that implementation, right? So I think my question is, are you looking for long-term growth opportunities, things with lots of upside, or are you looking for short-term wins that could start to produce cash flow in, in sort of the, the shorter term? I would say both and neither, which is like, <laughs> hear me out. <laughs> the priority is really trying to avoid sites that are going to not be around in, say, six months or 12 months. Because there's, when you buy a website for 100K, there's quite an asymmetrical risk there. Like it can go down to zero or it can, you know, it, it, there's a chance you could lose $100,000. Now it's rare that that happens, but that's where the risk is. And so, yes, we definitely look for opportunities to make a quick win. Some of our best purchases have been ones where we did just that, where we bought a site, didn't have display ads. We, we put display ads on and we tripled the revenue in an hour. Exactly. Or sites where... But then at the same time, we're looking for sites that have the opportunity to build something out over over a year or two years, a space that we get excited about, a website that we think, this is defensible, we can build a community around this, we can, it's not just a generic website that Google doesn't see any value in and, and might not be around in six months. So we look for both those things. But but the priority that we look at is really like, what is the risk? What are the what are the red flags? Because it's very easy to get excited by those those quick wins, but you first have to make sure you you know remember Warren Buffett's first rule about not losing money. And so, really, we will pass on something that might have great opportunity if we think it also has a lot of potential downside. Because that's how you get burned. That's how I made my first mistakes. Was like, oh, look at how you know this website's terrible. Look at how much upside I can have if I fix it up. And then you buy it and you fail to fix it up and you're like, oh, now I've just got a terrible website. That was kind of obvious in hindsight. And so really the first thing we look at is what are the risks with this website? Will it go to zero? Will it, or not even go to zero, just will it like, you know, lose a lot of its revenue? Is it diversified? And if it isn't, then we kind of stop the conversation there. But if it, if it passes those tests, then we say, okay, now is there anything exciting about it? And if there isn't, then some investors will say to them, listen, there's nothing exciting about this. Like we don't know how much it could grow, but 
it's a solid website and it could still give you a decent ROI. And some of them will say, great, I'll take it. Whereas others will say, no, I want something with more upside. And both of those are fine. So we, you know, we just keep looking and we're not always right, but we've definitely avoided a lot of terrible sites by focusing on, well, focusing on avoiding terrible sites. I'm going to ask one of the golden questions from the listeners, and I'm sure the folks that that interview you, and this is one of the questions you get asked probably pretty often, is how do you determine what you're going to pay or what you're going to offer for an online asset? I spoke with Carrie Smith Nicholson, who she used to own Careful Sense. I interviewed her probably two, three weeks back, and she sold that blog for, it's after like seven or eight years, for a little over $100,000. I've had other guys on, Brock McGough, who he owns another men's blog. Uh, it's slipping, slipping my mind now. Anyways, it's a, uh, he's got lots of viewers, and he was talking about building passive income. Uh, the Modest Man, that's what it's called. He's talking about building passive income and getting ready and preparing his blog to sell it. How, you know, as you're, reviewing all the numbers and the monthly visitors and the the cash flow it's producing and the ad revenue and maybe even traffic diversity, right? 20% is coming from social, 20% is coming from their email list, 20% is organic. Uh, As you view all these numbers, how do you determine what that online asset is worth? Are you just applying a multiple to how much that that website produces every month? Is is it more complicated than that? What, What does that look like for you? Typically, it is a multiple, but then the multiple could be determined by some of those other factors, like how diversified is it? How much history does it have? How, what is the trend? Uh, what are the opportunities? How long has it been at this, this level? And, and things like that. And so the industry average is probably just under 2.5 years profit to 3.5. So I know a lot of SaaSes and stuff are valued often on revenue, but content businesses are valued on profit. The profit and the revenue are actually usually quite similar anyway. And so if a website, for example, is a really strong website, then I'll pay a higher multiple. Whereas if it's a terrible website with a lower multiple, well, I'm actually not really interested in it. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's definitely a type of investor who wants to their strategy is to get the best deal possible. So, you know, they're, they're constantly trying to negotiate people down. They don't want to see anything unless it's underpriced. And none of my best deals have been from sites like that. So my best deals are usually the ones I pay more for because I'm, I'm getting something better. And so there is that industry average. And then depending on the strengths or weaknesses of the site, you move towards the higher end or the lower end of it. Sure. This is a question I've been I've been chewing on for a week-ish now. You have, let's call it over 45 websites in your portfolio today, uh, in, in the total portfolio. Experience buying and selling even more than that, right? From past life, previous businesses, helping others, working with others, being on podcasts. I mean, who knows how many pod or how many online assets you've been involved with in just the, this cycle. When you're involved with something this often, you typically will start to develop some sort of standard operating procedure or run book, right? Of this is starting to work. I found this is effective. I carry this to my next business and I carry this to my next business. And you, and you see this across the board in all verticals. This, your business, and as I hear you talk, you remind me lots of, this is another trends member of Netic Vidanyan, and he is the founder of the crowdfunding formula. 
And his journey was very, very similar to yours in that he started out and he built this skill set over a, a you know five or six year period. Then he wrote a book and he started consulting about it. And people were asking him to help crowdfund. Uh, he would give advice and people would only take 60, 70% of his advice. He said, well, what would happen if someone took 100% of my advice? If everyone did everything that I said? So he started this agency and now they are the best in the world at crowdfunding. You have done something very similar here with your process and I'm interested in the online world. You've gotten them, you know, you've got to this point where you can buy a business, turn it around, help it cash flow, implement things that uh, sort of generate more organic traffic, help it become more dominant in the industry. I'm curious, when you acquire a business, do you have a checklist or a run book or standard operating procedures, something that you run down to say, every one of my websites is going to have this? Well, that was a good question. Yeah, we do. And some of it's actually quite simple. You know, like, a content website just needs more content and more links. But um, yeah, we, we, we have like a standard onboarding and that typically involves looking at the business through a technical standpoint first and being like, what's broken? What needs to be fixed? What can be improved? How can we speed it up? Let's get rid of all the bloat, all these plugins that the seller installed and never used or, you know, stuff like that. And then we make a plan for growing the business and, we always do stuff yeah, the same way. We'll do keyword research. We'll look at the competitors in the space. We'll then there's probably some other stuff which, you know, is not exactly proprietary, but it's just like my team just just do it and I'm sure other people do it as well. Um, just related to like secret source, but yeah, just stuff that we always do. And then and then you kind of just wait <laughs> and see if it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then a month later, you're like, okay, that didn't work. Let's try it again. So, Exactly. Carrie was saying there, there are times she would implement something and then she would have to wait 30, 60, 90 days to see the impact it would have in the online world, right? And then you're on the other side, you're, you're making your changes. And then on the other side of this, Google's making their changes. And so you're trying, it's this constant battle of, re- I mean, it, it's so interesting, man. I know I'm getting close on time. I had one other question and I pulled this from the, the folks in the trends group. I saw recently Sam Parr gave you a shout out and in the thread following, he mentioned all this background info on you. And in the thread, as people started commenting, it was like 60, 70% of the conversation was around your hiring and training process. And I thought that was so, so interesting. Uh, I don't want to rip and repeat any of that conversation. Folks need to become members of the trends group and and be involved in that. I I talk about it every episode. But I do want to ask you, uh, what does your org chart look like? And and how do you handle scale, right? You have 45 companies or online assets in your portfolio. Are you hiring a CEO or a C-level guy per asset, per five assets? Are they spread across and managing multiple businesses? Like, How, how do you handle all of this? Yeah. Well, this is something that's evolved a lot. Where we're at now is we will have uh, a CEO or a general manager type person for several businesses. Yeah. So let's say the bigger businesses might have one person just focusing on three of them or four of them. And then the smaller ones maybe will have either one person focusing on 10 or maybe um, a junior person who focuses on 10 and then they report to one of the senior people who's focusing on like four or five. And we're still filling out those roles because 
originally we were like, no, we just need three or four of us to focus on all the sites and then team members to actually implement all of the work and the plans that we make. But we realized you're just not going to get the same results if you're not focusing on sites as much as you should. And, and that's another reason we've scaled up the size of the businesses we've run because when a business is doing 1K a month, you know, maybe you need 10 of them before you can pay a, a really high level, like a player person, the salary to, um, to run the site and still actually then have some profit. Um, so when we buy businesses that are making 30 K a month and like profit now there's like 120 K a month between them. You can pay someone 10 K a month, which is a fairly competitive salary to, to run like four sites. Um, and, um, not that that's exactly what we pay. I'm just saying you've got so much more to play with. Um, and I think actually I listened to Andrew Wilkinson's episode of, uh, I think it was my first million. And he talks about how all the businesses that they buy are tiny. They have a, a CEO run all of them. And obviously their businesses are bigger. They're like, um, several million dollars and up in, in pricing. Um, so they have the budget to do it. But that was when I started thinking like, yeah, you, you need a CEO to run every business. And it could be a fractional CEO who maybe they do. Yeah. Like let's say there's 40 hours in a work week. So they do 10 hours per asset. Um, but if you don't do that, then um, sites will just start to taper off and, and not perform as well. Yeah, as you they start should. to derail. Yeah, exactly. Totally. You're this will be my, my final question to you, man. Where are you finding these online wizards? Like it's, it's easy to, yeah, it's easy to throw out uh, job sort of requirements and say, Hey, I'm looking for, but this is a really unique role. You're looking for a pretty, pretty specific skill set, And it's a, uh, uh, you're trusting folks with your sort of portfolio at this point, right? These are your babies. And so how, where are you finding these wizards to come in and, and help you with this? Again, it's, it's a bit like deal flow. I, I get people who approach me. I get people who I approach because I've, I'm pretty good at networking. So I just have a large network. I have a sort of mental Rolodex of people that I'm like, oh, that would be a good person to hire one day. People hear me on podcasts and approach me. People read my blog. They see me on Twitter. They approach me. So, and yeah, of course, there's also the classic, like I, I just post a job on job posting websites and, and I get people, but they're, they're typically not tens because not, not saying that people that I've hired off there are bad, but normally you hire them for sort of junior roles and generally the best people already have a job. So you're not gonna, you're not gonna get them on a job posting board. Yeah. It's just about finding people who you think might be good. And then when the time comes, just saying like, Hey, I have a job if you want to apply for it or if you know anyone who might be good. Something else I, I read recently, I can't remember who it was. I may have heard it on a podcast or I may have read it. This may even have been Andrew Wilkinson as well. But someone said they ask their CEOs who the best people they know are. And so a lot of their CEOs come from referrals of other CEOs. It may have been Blackstone. But anyway, it was someone who's like, you know, someone's advice you should listen to. They basically, you know, they, they, they go to their talented people and they're like, who's the best person you know at this thing? And then who are the 10 best people you know at this thing? And then they try and network with those 10 people and ask each of those 10 people, who are the 10 best people you know? And then um, suddenly they've got a list of hundreds of potential candidates and so that, that's how they do it and it's something i've started thinking is is well worth attempting as well 
Yeah. Judy, uh, we had we had Judy Robinette on the podcast and she was ranked the number two networker in the world. This is exactly what she talked about is like when you're at the bar, when you're at the airport, when you this this ability to hyper network and connect with people and under and quickly understand who they are and be able to deliver your story and that you know you mentioned I'm a pretty good networker being able to sort of catalog like that was a pretty badass conversation that guy's the real deal I'm going to reach back out to him or I'm going to keep a cadence with him and then at some point you're able to reach back out tap into their skill set and you can meet some killers man through networking you know you're you acquiring businesses through podcasting through interviewing you can meet them at the airport you can that this that ability to network is uh, underutilized uh, brother I'm it's 11 p.m. for you. Uh, I'm an hour in. Uh, is there anything that I've missed? Uh, I've jumped around a ton in the hour. Uh, as I wrap up here, man, anything worth just spending one extra one extra cycle on or uh, just sort of closing thoughts? No, I'm just sitting there thinking, I didn't realize they ranked people people's abilities to network. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, how do you get to be the number two in the world? Was there a competition? That's really cool. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to... Yeah, uh, brother. I uh, I really, really appreciate your flexibility here in scheduling. I mentioned we started at 10 p.m. for you, so we we're on other our opposite ends of the world. Uh, you, your team, you guys are the real deal. Uh, I love following along, uh, and I've been really, really enjoyed consuming what I feel like is all the content you have. So I'm uh, very grateful for all that you produce. For the folks that have tuned in, that like what they hear, they want to follow along, consume what you have. Uh, what's the best place to sort of reach you and and your material? Uh, yeah, I mean, so onfolio.co is the website. There's a contact form if they want to contact me and just follow the blog and everything. And say on every podcast that people should can follow me on Twitter. And uh, I think people, no one ever does, not, not just follow me, but I mean, when you hear someone say that, you're like, um, yeah, whatever. But actually, like, there's there's really good conversations on Twitter, and I'm on there all the time. So I'm like, actually, that's the best place to reach me because people, there's there's uh, there's a lot of good conversations happening. It's a really good discovery engine. So that actually is a good place to reach me. So um, I'm just going to try and sell that a little bit harder here. <laughs> yeah, I will. Uh, I'll make sure that your Twitter handle as well as everything else is is uh, linked in the show notes. I am a follower of yours. Uh, and I also use Twitter. I mean, man, it's less of a social engine. I mean, it's definitely social media, but it's less of the social media engine and more of like, like you said, it is full of entrepreneurs and angel investors and venture capitalists and folks that are talking business. And I, I love the conversations out there. I'll make sure that all the resources we've discussed, including your blog and, and social linked in the show notes, I actually have an entire transcript of the podcast word for word on the website over at roadstowealth.com. If you guys have any questions, if you need anything, give me a shout. Uh, Don, man, really appreciate your time. For the listeners, thank you all for tuning in this week. Give someone a hug. This has been a good one and stay on your grind. Cheers. Thanks for having me. These guys from the Trends Group, they never seem to disappoint. I'm going to jump right into my takeaways here as I have lots that I want to unpack as we unpacked lots in that hour. The first takeaway is the fine line of diversification. And Dom talked about diversification in terms of online business, but this philosophy and the strategy that he talked about is applicable to any and all portfolio, right? This idea of 
don't go 100% into any business, right? Because if, if it's a miss, you're a miss. You go down with it, right? And at the same time, if you spread your money across 200 stocks or 200 asset classes, or like Dom said, 45 online businesses by yourself, uh, there's no way that you're going to make money from any of them, right? First, because there's not enough time. You can't, you can't dedicate yourself. Uh, you can't dedicate enough of your mental cycle to any one of those assets to get anything from it. And if there is a return, you don't have enough of your money in any of those one buckets to uh, get enough of that return back and see enough return on that investment. So the goal of diversification is to reduce risk. It's extremely necessary, uh, but it's really important to think about this fine line with each asset class that we try to take on and that we invest in, make sure that we really connect with it both emotionally and mathematically, that it makes sense. Second big takeaway here is when to buy versus when to build. Uh, build when you have no expertise. Uh, this is a long and hard journey that we've heard talked about by lots of entrepreneurs. Building an online asset, building the authority of that asset, building the customer base, building the content, uh, building the product. Each one of those require a very particular skill set. And if as I rattle those off, you get nervous about any of them, it's worth building to learn those skills. Right? One, to make sure that uh, you have that skill set and two, to make sure that you enjoy it. Uh, if you have them, then you need to buy. Uh, if you're comfortable inside the business, if you've touched each of those pieces before, or you've ran a business prior, reduce that business ramp curve and buy. Uh, you're buying the framework of a kick-ass business, and you know it's kick-ass because you've evaluated it through the due diligence that uh, Dom talked us through today. Uh, you're jumping into the race at lap 12 while others have started at zero, right? You're bringing your expertise into a great framework business and letting the two just run wild. It's, it's a really great strategy if you have the expertise. Uh, my third big takeaway here is what should you buy? What, what does that asset need to look like? And the answer is to buy assets, buy sites that are here for the long haul. You're not looking for a trendy product, something that's ramped very quickly, or a quick win of something you can implement ads on and get that quick sort of satisfaction or quick uptick in, in the business. Rather, you're looking for a business that's been well-built with diversified traffic, consistent monthly cash flow, something that you're excited about and that has the trajectory of growth or to grow in the next one to two years. Uh, keep in mind Dom's thoughts of uh, we're easily blinded by excitement. I'm just a living, breathing example of that. Very optimistic. And we always need to be looking at and evaluating the risk associated to the business. How can this lose, re lose revenue? Is this diversified? Is the traffic diversified? Is there something, is this something that I can build a community around? You know, this was 
such a unique wealth building strategy and it's had me all sorts of pumped since the interview. Uh, it's, I'm in no position today to buy an online business yet. I may have the, the capital to buy a smaller asset, but uh, I definitely feel that I lack the expertise. Uh, as I rattle through some of those, those questions earlier, uh, I get jittery. And so uh, I don't feel I'm ready for something of that. But uh, to know that this exists and if well done, they can be extremely lucrative. I'm more than certain that this will be a part of my portfolio at some point. Not only does it make a great cash flowing asset, but as I target this fire status, becoming financially independent, retiring early, maybe there's something to keep my business juices flowing, keep my mind sharp. We've heard folks in the past that, uh, that have achieved fire talk about the burnout of boredom. Maybe managing this online asset is something that can keep you involved in that business world, but something that you can do from anywhere in the world, right? Dom is doing this from Taiwan. He has a totally remote team. And that, let me close with, you know, I'm very, very thankful for Dom and, and his time here. I appreciate this. We are literally on opposite ends of the world. And for him to get so flexible and to make this happen, uh, it was an incredible opportunity. Uh, thank you all for the listeners for tuning in. Everything that you guys need is on my website. And while you're there, if you can leave me a podcast review, I'm still on that road to 50 and really, really appreciate the support. Until next week, stay on your grind. <laughs>